Today I'm continuing the series of sermons on worship. Over the past two weeks we've considered especially the story of how Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well as he was traveling through Samaria and how Jesus used that opportunity to talk about the real meaning of worship, especially how true worship has nothing to do with outward signs or even outward acts. While those things can be important in how they affect us, that's not the point. The point of worship is internal. It is what happens inside us. And Jesus makes that point by saying that we must worship in spirit and in truth, which means with our whole hearts and with our minds. I just this week came across a quote from William Barclay, who's a Scottish theologian of the 20th century. He died not very long ago. And he wrote this about worship. The true, the genuine worship is when man, through his spirit, attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True and genuine worship is not to come to a certain place. It is not to go through a certain ritual or liturgy. It is not even to bring certain gifts. In other words, it's not the external. True worship is when the spirit, the immortal and invisible part of man, speaks to and meets with God, who is immortal and invisible. It is what happens inside our hearts and our minds. But as we talked about last week, in order for us to worship God in spirit and in truth, to focus on Him with our whole hearts and minds, we have to make an effort. We can't just come here and sit back and wish we had a footstool so that we can enjoy the entertainment like we're watching Monday Night Football. We have to come here with the idea of focusing ourselves into an attitude of worship when we come before God, whether it's in a formal service like this or in our own personal devotional life. But how do we do that? To focus, you have to have something to focus on. And as we said last week, it's very difficult for us to focus on God simply because we've never seen God. God is spirit, and we don't have an image of what God looks like. We have lots of different pictures of Jesus. I I think some of those photographs have been doctored, but um, we don't know exactly what God looks like. And so how do we focus on something we have never seen? How do we concentrate our minds and our hearts? Well, again, as we discuss Scripture, especially the Psalms, teach us that we can focus on God by remembering what God has done in the past, His great acts, especially of redemption and creation, and also by anticipating the fulfillment of what God has promised for the future. Remembrance of God's acts in the past and anticipation of God's promised acts of the future, looking back and looking forward. This is how we are taught in Scripture to focus our hearts and minds on God and to bring ourselves into an attitude of worship. And the perfect example of worshiping by remembering God's past actions and the anticipation of His fulfillment of future promises is through the sacraments, especially the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are the two that we recognize. So what is a sacrament? We Presbyterians don't talk about sacraments a whole lot. We do them, but we don't discuss them. Well, perhaps the best definition of sacrament actually comes from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, which defines a sacrament, the way it's defined on the cover of your bulletin, as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And the Book of Prayer continues on to say, they are given to us by ordination from Christ himself. John Calvin, who's the founder of Presbyterian Reformed Theology, said that a sacrament, and I quote, is an outward sign by which the Lord seals our consciences with the promise of his goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. 
that God uses the sacraments to shore us up, to strengthen us in our times of weakness as a seal on our lives. We Presbyterians, and in fact most Protestant denominations, accept two sacraments as being instituted by Christ. They are the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or the Holy Communion, there are several names for it, and baptism. But some Protestant traditions, such as the Baptists, and I'm sure we have a few people who have been Baptists, I used to be Baptist. Um, I got saved in the Southern Baptist Church in Mountain City, Tennessee. I'll tell you the story sometime. The 27th verse of Just As I Am, I stepped out into the aisle on Sunday night. Well, Baptist, among other Protestant traditions, prefer not to use the word sacrament because it carries sort of a Catholic and, you know, they have trouble with it historically. So they prefer to use the word ordinance because these are things that were ordained by Christ for us to do. Now, of course, you probably, if you know anything about other religions, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church have seven proper sacraments. The Orthodox churches in the East actually think anything is sacramental if it's dedicated to God, but they have seven proper sacraments. They include baptism and the Lord's table, which we have, but they also add penance, forgiveness of sins, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, and anointing of the sick. Anointing of the sick used to be called extreme unction until Vatican II. But Protestants from the Reformation on said that those other five, besides baptism and the Lord's table, were not ordained by Jesus. Jesus didn't tell everybody, get married. He didn't tell everybody, you need to become a monk or a priest. So he didn't ordain those specifically. So the Protestant Reformation said, we only accept the two that Jesus initiated. But whether you are Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant, the fact is that the sacraments, whether seven or two, have always been seen as central to Christian worship until very recent times. And I think one of the things that we have failed in as, a, as Protestant churches is we have not emphasized enough the blessing that Jesus gave us when he instituted both baptism and the sacrament of communion or the Lord's Supper. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the most popular confession from the Book of Confession, it's the, the one that's used by more different kinds of churches, and it's part of our tradition, speaks of, and I quote, the reading of Scripture and sound preaching as being part of Christian worship, but it goes on to speak of other parts of worship, including especially the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments. I don't think we pay enough attention to the sacraments in our church. And so I want to look at those a little bit this morning to talk about, I could get into all sorts of controversies about, well, baptism, do you sprinkle or you dunk, you know, the, but those aren't really the point. Those are the externals. And we've just said that it is the internal that God is calling us to. So I want to look at these two sacraments this morning and talk a little bit about them. The first one is the sacrament of baptism. And I want to read for you Jesus, the place where Jesus tells us that we are to use baptism as a sacrament. And it's likely we don't have this slide either if the other one didn't come up. Nope. Yeah. That's all right. Um, the sacrament of baptism was instituted by Matthew 28, starting with the 18th verse. These are the last words that Jesus spoke before he ascended into heaven and the instructions that he gave his disciples. And he says this as a word of encouragement and instruction. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. 
Jesus gave us the specific instructions to draw other people to Him, to witness to Him. And when they came to faith in Christ, we are to baptize them. Baptism is the visible expression of our salvation in Christ. It is a is part of our public profession of faith. Just as Christ entered into the grave as a dead man, carrying with Him the sins of all humanity, and then emerged alive having defeated sin and the grave, so by our profession in Jesus Christ, we enter into baptism. This is especially obvious for the people who, as I was, get completely immersed. Because the idea is you are entering into the grave as Jesus did, and then you come back out again. I don't think that symbolism means we have to immerse fully. Um, we, I'll, if you've got questions about that, come to Pastor's Forum and we'll talk about it. But the fact is, baptism is a sign of our being buried and then resurrected, free from sin in Christ, having had our sins washed away and being born again. That is the symbolism of baptism. That is why we celebrate that as an entry into the church. Jesus commanded us to baptize as a process for people who have professed faith in Him to enter into the church, which is His body. But baptism is not a requirement for salvation. If it were a requirement for salvation, and by that I mean water baptism, it would always be mentioned in Scripture when it talks about what we must do to be saved. But most notably, as I've talked about before here, in Romans 10.9, the Apostle Paul is telling the Roman church what is required for salvation. And he says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no mention there of water baptism as being necessary for salvation. And he would not have left that out when he's making a very clear statement about how you're saved if that were a requirement. Now, baptism, however, is very important. I'm not diminishing the importance. It is the sign and seal of our identification with Jesus. And it's proof of our existence as God's people. In a very direct way, it echoes what circumcision was to the Jewish people. That it's a physical, visible sign that we have been adopted into the body of Christ and are so marked as the people of God. I once was doing consulting work with a church down in Mission Viejo, California. And one of the four elders they had told me that his wife was part of a women's group. And the, his wife had come to him and said, they're, they're independent church, they don't belong to any tradition. His wife has said, well, our women's group want to baptize each other in a swimming pool, but we don't want anybody else to know about it. Is that okay? And this elder, who had no theological training, said, well, sure. The whole point of baptism, it is supposed to be a public profession of your faith. It is supposed to be the time when you say to the, to the members of the body gathered, I profess my faith in Jesus. And it's supposed to follow some sort of instruction so that they know what they're getting into. And I just had these awful visions of these women baptizing each other in secret and saying, I, you know, I, I am so pleased that Mother Earth, Gaia, has accepted me into the water of, you know, and because nobody had instructed them about anything. Baptism is to be a public, visible declaration of our faith in Christ and the process by which we enter into the church that it is, is His body. But of course, baptism only occurs once for each of us. It's an important point of Reformed theology, Presbyterian theology, that we do not re-baptize people. Unfortunately, they've even fought wars over that. 
When people ask to be rebaptized, and that happens fairly often here, uh, particularly when we have people who've come from a Catholic tradition and were baptized as infants in the Catholic Church, when they want to come, when they make a profession of faith, when they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus, and they want to enter our church, join our church, they want to be rebaptized. Well, we don't do that. Because the problem is when you think being rebaptized, the question you have to ask is, what do you think is going to change? What is this going to do for you? Usually it means, well, I'm not really okay unless I get baptized. I'm not really saved until I get baptized. And that's not what we believe. We are, we are very happy, and Presbyterian churches, other Protestant churches that I know of that don't rebaptize, they're very happy to acknowledge and celebrate a person's renewal of faith with a service of confirmation or of dedication or any other kind of acknowledgement of a life that is newly and fully committed to Jesus. But we don't rebaptize because that suggests that there's something magical about the baptism, that you have to do it again. A friend of ours in our, our community group the other night told me she'd been baptized 11 or 12 times because she came from a church where it's like every time somebody's supposed to confess, confess their sins, they want to rebaptize them. All right? No, that's not how we do it. And that shows a real misunderstanding of what baptism is. Baptism is a once-for-all sign and seal that marks our commitment of faith in Christ and our entry into the church. But while we only get baptized once, we have the opportunity to share often in the second sacrament, which is the sacrament of communion, or the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table, or Eucharist. The word Eucharist, which higher liturgical churches use, means thanksgiving. So let's talk for a minute about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or the Lord's Table. I want to read to you, this is actually from Paul, but Paul is instructing the church in Corinth about the sacrament of communion or the Lord's table because apparently they were doing it wrong. And so in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, starting with the 23rd verse, Paul writes this about Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the, uh, af- also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Perhaps nowhere in our worship is there a better example of how our worship involves remembrance of what God has done in the past and anticipation of what God will do in the future than in the sacrament of communion. The Lord's Supper, first of all, has past significance. For we're talking about the bread and the cup as the symbol of God's great sacrifice in Jesus Christ made for us. That it is the institution that recognizes what Jesus did. That he broke his body and he shed his blood for us. The past historic event of Jesus' death on the cross, the breaking of his body, the pouring out of his blood, was what broke the power of sin in our lives and made it possible for us to again be in relationship with God. So we remember that extraordinary historic act of the cross whenever we celebrate communion. But we also need to recognize the Lord's Supper has present significance. Since the sacrament is something that we repeat It allows us to remember the death of the Lord again and again until he returns. 
It's also an occasion for us to examine our lives in light of the profession of faith. Paul said, Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And I confess a failure that I have not often enough before our communion services made it clear that we are supposed to examine ourselves before we take communion, lest we eat and drink unworthily, as the old King James would say about Paul's comments. But at the heart of the present significance of the Lord's Supper is our present communion or fellowship with Jesus. That's why we call it a communion service. We are in communion with Christ and with one another. And finally, communion, the Lord's table, is a looking forward to his return when he comes back in power so that we might be with him forever. That's why the words of institution that I use always say, therefore, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup in faith, we eat the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming his death until he comes again. We are looking back, we are recognizing where we are now, and we are looking forward. All of that is found in the Lord's Supper. My preaching mentor in seminary, Ian Pitt Watson, the best preacher I ever heard, he was probably the most popular preacher during his life in in Scotland, and that's saying something, because the Scots have a lot of really great preachers. Ian Pitt Watson once said, you know, whenever I'm writing a sermon, I have to pick a direction. Either I'm going to be preaching, to use an, uh, an illustration, either I'm preaching the sadness and grief of Good Friday, or I'm preaching the joy of Easter morning. I have to pick what direction I'm going to focus on. He said, and I'm going to miss some people. If I'm preaching, you know, the, the sense of our own brokenness and our sinfulness, and there's somebody else who's having a great week, and they're really ready to celebrate, I miss them. If somebody is, on the other hand, really broken and hurting, and I preach the joy of salvation, I'm going to miss them. But he said, you know what? The table touches people wherever they are. Whether they bring the brokenness of sin or they bring the joy of salvation, the bread and the cup will meet them where they are and minister to them. And that's why he said, I, I really think we should serve communion as often as we should, or as we could, because it's, it has a spectacular effect on everyone. Now, these sacraments, baptism and especially the Lord's Supper, have always been a central part and in, in many ways the most central part of Christian worship. That's especially true of communion, the sacrament of the table in which we share the bread and wine as being the very body and blood of Jesus Christ, remembering his sacrifice, looking forward to his return. It is perhaps the purest and most direct way that we can worship God by remembering and by anticipating his great acts. Now, many churches, like the Catholics and Anglicans, recognize the importance of the sacrament of communion by participating in it at every church service. Every regular Sunday worship, Catholic and Anglican, they will serve communion. In fact, many Catholics will go to Mass every day in order to partake of the communion, and they can do that. Other Protestant churches vary widely. Uh, Some offer communion once a month, which is the way we have done it in the past. Others do it less often. The Baptist church that I attended and got saved in, they would practice communion only on the fifth Sunday of every Every fifth Sunday, I guess I should say, which means it was only four times a year. Because four times a year you end up with a month that has four Sundays in it. This is one of those months, by the way, or um, five Sundays, I mean. I know that 
some Protestants have said before that if you practice communion too often or if you do anything too often, it loses its significance. Perhaps it becomes too commonplace. But in fact, human experience, from everything I can tell, says exactly the opposite. That those who practice communion more often seem to find it more meaningful. For many people, sharing in the sacrament of the table more often causes them to find deeper meaning in all of their worship. It becomes a center point for their worship. They experience the Lord's table more often, and therefore they grow more in appreciating all that God has done in the past and all that he will do in the future. And for that reason, this summer we're going to be doing some things differently. And some of these things are going to be tests. You're going to be part of an experiment. And one of the things that we are going to do this summer is we are going to start increasing the number of times each month that we offer communion, that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, we're going to, in the month of June, we're going to start celebrating communion on each of the odd-numbered months, uh, Sundays of the month, first, third, and fifth when they occur, so that every other week, in effect, you will be able to share in the communion table. Along with that increased number, I am going to start spending more effort to focus on what communion means and how we need to enter into it in a way that is most worshipful and is most advantageous to our relationship with the Lord. And in fact, that's only one thing. This summer we're going to be doing a number of different things. We are going to have more prayer for individuals at the end of our service. We're going to be doing some different things musically. Um, we're going to be incorporating a number of different elements. The whole purpose is, as a follow-up to this series of sermons on worship, that we might be encouraged to enter into a more meaningful, a more moving experience of worship, that we can worship the Lord more fully in spirit and in truth in our hearts and in our minds as we gather together to acknowledge his presence here. So I ask you to pray for those efforts. I ask you to pray that we as a church will grow in our knowledge and in our understanding and especially in our experience of worshiping the Lord our God. And make sure you stay tuned because there are exciting things ahead. Amen.